Hey everybody, and welcome to another episode of Elixir Mix. This week on the panel, we have Alan Weimar. Weimar, but yes, hello. And didn't I say that? Why? Weimar? Uh, you say Weimar. <laughs> Weimar, Weimar. <laughs> We've only been doing this for, for almost, what, half a year now? So it's okay. You're still catching up, right? <laughs> yeah, I'm not good with names. So I'm the kind of person to tell the name and like half an hour later, I already forgot it. Okay, and, and our other panelist is Adi Eingar. I hope I didn't watch that. You have never watched it, so that, that's good. Yeah, but hello. All right. All right. <laughs> I'm Sasha Wolf. And this week, we don't have a special guest. We have another epi uh, panelist episode. And Adi actually suggested that we talk about code quality tools and especially code coverage because he has strong opinions on the topic. So, Adi, why don't you give us the whirlwind tour of what you want to focus on today? Yeah, I mean, I've been recently, you know, like mentoring a lot of like newer engineers. And when they're new, you kind of ask a lot about like, oh, how can I ensure that my code quality is great, right? So they've been like curious about all the tools and I've been sharing that with them and I thought it'd be a good you know, topic to cover during this episode. Hey folks, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs. And lately I've been working on actually building out Top End Devs. If you're interested, you can go to topendevs.com slash podcast and you can actually hear a little bit more about my story, about why I'm doing what I'm doing with Top End Devs, why I changed it from uh, devchat.tv to Top End Devs. But what I really want to get into is that I have decided that I'm going to build the platform that I always wished I had with devchat.tv. And I renamed it to Top End Devs because I want to give you the resources that are going to help you to build the career that you want, right? So whether you want to be an influencer in tech, whether you want to go and just max out your salary and then go live a lifestyle with your family, your friends, or just traveling the world or whatever, I, I want to give you the resources that are going to help you do that. We're going to have career and leadership resources in there, and we're going to be giving you content on a regular basis to help you level up and max out your career. So go check it out at topendevs.com. If you sign up before my birthday, that's December 14th. If you sign up before my birthday, you can get 50% off the lifetime of your subscription. Once again, that's topendevs.com. So uh, before we get to the code coverage, like the more controversial, we can like get some of the less controversial stuff out of the way, right? So uh, I guess a great one to start with is like Credo or Credo. I'm not sure how it's pronounced or how it's like expected to be pronounced. But yeah, Credo is like, you know, a, a tool which like I add to literally all my projects. I also run that in like the strict mode. <laughs> but uh, like I was curious, like what you you, you guys experience is, is, is with Credo and yeah, I mean, it, it, do you guys like like it? Do you guys use it? I don't use Credo, so this is controversial to me now. I've also been using it in every project of mine, and I think it's Credo, like that's the pronunciation, at least if I remember correctly from Rene. But yeah, like it, it is something I've used in every project. I'm I'm a bit on the fence when it comes to the strict setting because I do like this idea of Credo saying, hey, I'm going to basically look at the code base and trying to figure out like how you usually do it. And then I'm going to tell you when you diverge from that. Because like when you use strict, it's more of a traditional inter, right? right. And when you don't use strict, like it really tries, tries, tries to look at your code base, tries to figure out, okay, how you usually do it. And then where exactly are places where you might diverge from that. So you have the consistent code base, not necessarily one which is written in a certain style, dictated by the tool, but written in your style that helps you be stay consistent with that. So I'm, I'm kind of fond of that. But I do see how um, Swift can be, for example, useful inside of a team. We just say, hey, let's, let's stick to this one code uh, guideline. Right. Let's not spend time on discussing this for ages. Uh, and that, that, that's uh, there's certainly value in that. But for my personal project, I like to be more non-strict. Uh, approach of Credo. Maybe it's good to kind of talk about, I mean, I can't be the only one who's not using 
Credo, right? So why would I want to use Credo when I already have things like warnings popping up from Elixir and my test cases are working fine and my mix formatting is there? What kind of things would make me want to use Credo versus not actually using Credo? Because I've never used it. I know what it is. It's kind of like a linter, but the thing is linters, I mean, who's actually kind of making up these rules and how how trustworthy can I make them? I understand you can turn things off and on based on what you think you need, but you know, why? Why should I think about this? Why should I care about that? Yeah, th- I think this is where, where Credo is actually super interesting because, I mean, I mean using, you're more using it on the strict side and then it really is more like a traditional linter. And I think there's there's a discussion to be had if, like, linters are worth the time and I guess the answer for some is no and the answer for some other people is yes. I guess it boils down to um, preference. But, like, the one thing Credo does differently from a lot of linters out there is if you don't run it in strict mode, it looks at your code base. Like it looks at code base, it has different checks and looks at code base and tries to figure out, okay, how do you usually do it? For example, how do you order your aliases and imports and use clauses? And is there a place in your code base where you don't do that? Like if you, I don't know, like if 10 files, let's say, and you do it a nine out of 10 in this way, and suddenly in the 10th, you do it in another way, that's what Credo would say, hey, yeah, like you usually do it like that, but here you do it differently. And maybe you want to take a look at that because you want to stick with consistency. And I think having consistency is is, is something which is worth the effort in a code base because then there are less surprises, right? So yeah, at that front, but um, at that point, it's mostly a consistency help tool, I guess. <laughs> So it's kind of like a way to keep the team together, right? You have your you have your styles, and then it's like even if you're not using the strict style that Credo says is strict and Credo says you should use, you can use your own style. Then Credo will say, "Okay, I'm flexible. I see what you do," and then they kind of enforce it from there. Yeah. One of the other what? features it also has is like I feel like that the the consistency and standardization is I feel like it's like a secondary feature for me. One of the things that it, I popped up popped out earlier for me was because it would like uh, give you like complexity analysis so like if you have like a lot of like branches in your function which you should not if you're running elixir right but uh, instead of me having to review the code if the function has like you know a lot of complexity uh credo will let you know that hey this function is very complex and it's good to you know let the ci fail before me having to review all the code so i like that i think it's another way of like you know enforcing certain standards uh, I'm not sure if it does that in like non-strict mode, but it definitely. Uh, I've actually not used cre- uh, Credo in non-strict mode ever. Yeah, I mean, so, I mean, I, if, you, if you have a function with a lot of internal branching from if else or this kind of stuff, it'll then complain. Mm-hmm. So I remember there was a we had like a, a case inside a condition which was inside a case and could have been easily fixed either by multiple functions or actually in that case a with clause. So uh, Credo did yell at us saying there's a lot of like uh, branching or I forget what it's called but like a, a lot yeah a lot of like a, I guess it is technically a branching a lot of conditionals and like one thing also Credo does not necessarily different from a lot of other linters but I like it's something very core to Credo's design is that it gives you the opportunity to explain a warning so if it tells you hey something is for example like a quote's wrong over here it doesn't it necessarily use the language wrong like for example there's a refactoring opportunity or there's like a consistency issue here. And then you can basically tell Credo, okay, for this particular warning here in this line, tell me more. And then it can give you, like, a, for example, an explanation of why it, think, why it thinks that you may, might want to take a look at this and why it thinks it's a good idea to maybe do it one way or not the other. So this is like something built into the core of Credo and like a core design principle of it to also, I guess, help new Elixir developers get up to speed with certain best practices in the language, which are not necessarily captured by by warnings from the compiler and, and as such. So for example, for example, one thing it does, I think, is like if you have a with clause with only 
one clause and like an else branch, it will tell you, hey, you can just use a case here. I think right. this is one of the things Credo does. And like, it's nothing wrong with writing it that way. <laughs> like, I mean, you can write it and it will work. And I don't think the compiler will complain, but it's arguably that specifically a scenario where a case is or what you ought to be using because that's literally the scenario of a case, right? Like, I mean, of an expression and the value and you want to which on the result. So yeah, that, that's basically Credo in a nutshell, I guess. This did answer your questions, Alan. Are you now converted? Uh, <laughs> no, I did have a question before, but I forgot what it was. I, I mean, it is something I think I want to start bringing in my projects. I'm just trying to think about how beginner-friendly it is because most of the people on my team are still newer to Elixir. They they kind of like Live View because you know they're used to writing lots of JavaScript, and so it's making things easier, but they have to change their mindset. They have to still wrap their head around, oh, what is this socket of signs, and what do I have to use as a sign stuff? And then they're, they're not used to... You know, last thing that gets, gets evaluated will be returned, right? And also, the, one of the other things I keep tripped up, tripped up on is like, if you assign something, they think that the socket was being mutated, but actually, it's no, it's been transformed. There's another thing you have to kind of what I call catch. You have to bind that to the variable and then return it at the end, right? So if you don't bind to the socket that gets returned when you assign, then you're going to miss the assigns. Uh, so there's a lot of these kind of things. And so I just wonder if bringing this into the mix, sure, it'll help the code quality, but will they actually understand it? Will it be something that they can be like, hmm, okay, I can, okay, I see how I can make this better. That's what I kind of worry about. Maybe try it out and also see like what, what Credo actually tells you then, because like I said, it, it gives you the opportunity to ask it, okay, why do you give me this warning? And then it has, from my experience, a pretty decent exp explanation of like, okay, this is an issue because this and that. One thing I also like I think didn't mention yet is that by default it runs a certain set of checks, but it has like a whole bunch of checks. But you can also generate a configuration file, which is basically equivalent then to the default. And like a nice thing in there is all the checks are listed, like everything. So like there's basically a big list of checks Credo has. And it's not like an opt-out thing. Like you literally need to opt in to do a certain check. So you're not like an, some other linters where you say, hey, please don't do this check. But rather in Credo, you say, okay, please do this check. And for, to disable a check, you comment it out of that list or you remove it from that list. So it's very configurable by default. All of the checks are following a certain behavior. So if you in your team actually say, okay, we have a very specific style thing we would like to enforce, you can write your own check. Like nothing stops us from, do, from doing that. And all of the checks in Credo are built around this, this, this interface, this behavior. Actually, I'm just wondering, like I know in Ruby we have some kind of style guide, but there's no style guide for Elixir necessarily, only the formatter, right? There's the community-driven style guide. There's a community-driven best practices style guide. I can link it's, to it. It's like it's not pushed out by the by the Elixir people, Elixir core team, though. It's kind of like community, just kind of put together, right? Yes, exactly. It's a community-driven one. Does Credo conform to that one? I don't know from the top of my head, to be honest. Also, it hasn't been updated in quite a while. Like it's five. Oh wait, no, this is a forked one. No, it hasn't been updated in quite a while. It's over five years old, so I guess maybe that's not really up to date anymore. It, like this, this diagram was created be before the formatter was a thing. Right. <laughs> so, yeah. I'm going to link it to it anyway. Maybe like, some of you find it useful, but uh, take it with a grain of salt, I guess. Okay, Ali, what, what are some other tools you like to use for like this kind of code quality topic? Actually, I'm just kind of curious. If I use a bunch of semicolons in my Elixir code, is it going to be okay? for Credo? Is it going to notice that and complain if I don't use it? I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, sem semicolons are actually something which, like, the formatter even gets rid of. Exactly, right? yeah. So... Yeah, I'm not sure. I'd like to try that. <laughs> oh, Alan, actually, just one point. Uh, in my team, out of five people, we have two new Elixir engineers. They've been perfectly okay using Credo. They've been with us for, like, over a, over a month now. Uh, it's been 
fine I still make because all the code was written with creator in mind from the, from the beginning so it makes it easy to follow so that that's a caveat but but they have had no problems with creator okay just Thanks because of yeah yeah also a funny thing I, I was gonna get uh credo's uh ci uh and their mixed credo strict is failing <laughs> so credo's credo's failing anyway so that was fun to point out <laughs> yeah so other tools sasha right so i guess one of the i guess we're going to talk about the format it's like obvious uh I guess let's go to code coverage. Is is formatter obvious though? I mean, I know let's some people. It. I know some people who don't use the formatter. Like, okay, that's that's a thing. The question is like, how do you use the formatter? Like, I mean, do you just use it on a on a on a everybody runs it on the local machine basis, or do you also include it in CI? Because I mean, the formatter has the option to say don't really Check format, format, but fail Check if format. it's not formatted, right? Mm-hmm. We do it in a CI. I feel like. Yeah. Again, it's it's we had the privilege of writing the entire code with that in mind. Again, same with Credo. So it's easy to include that in CI. I know a lot of code that, you know, is not already formatted. People don't like running a format on like, you know, thousands of lines of code and if something changed that they don't know of. And then I don't know if there's a way to check formatted for only the new code. So if that if there was a way to do that, that might kind of fix that problem. I don't think there is, to be honest. I could imagine that you it should be fairly straightforward to build some tooling around that. Basically, say okay, run a find on your whole code base and any files which have a, child, a date changed after X, right? Those only get form passed to the formatter. Like that's the thing you could do. But right, yeah, I get where you're coming from. I get where you're coming from. To be honest, I've never felt this was big, such big of an issue. I mean, you make one pull request where you say, okay, this just bus runs the formatter. It's big, yes, but it just wants the formatter. There's no no changes in, in, in the behavior. I mean, the formatter is literally built around the idea of the AST stays the same, right? Mm-hmm. Right. So, yeah, there should be no behavior change. And then it should, then it should be fine. But, yeah, do you, do you run the formatter, Alan? Is the formatter something you use? Yeah, I like to use the formatter, and people on my team like to use it too. Usually I tell them to run the formatter because they write code, like, I don't know, like when I, when I don't see the proper spacing and stuff, I just get irritated. I'm like, please, I just look at the code as they're writing it. I'm like, can you please run the formatter? I'm getting, <laughs> I don't know, I just feel anxious when I see code in not so nice way. Yeah, I'm, I'm also like really fond of the formatter myself, like for various reasons. Like I remember back when I started with Elixir, there was not a formatter yet. And like we, we actually did have occasional discussions in the team and like pull request, hey, can you maybe format this differently? Then refer to the community style guide, for example. And then when the formatter landed, it did some choices i was not that fond of at that point in time i couldn't even tell you what it was ex- uh, anymore but at the end of the day it's enforces consistency right and like one one thing i notice about myself is that when i now write elixir i just write it syntactically correct and i don't really care about how it looks if it i mean i, I save regularly right like so maybe i write like two lines of code or like one line of code and i don't even care about indentation at level because i'm like eh, the format is gonna do it anyway <laughs> Like just new line break, write the stuff, save, format it. Okay, continue. Which is actually kind of nice when you're at that point. Like, don't really have to care about um, this nitty gritty stuff of formatting, but just can focus on the code, save regularly, and have this tool which takes care of it automatically. And also, the formatter is like a really nice early warning tool to like when when you I don't know like have like a syntactic error in there, and the formatter is gonna is choking on that too, right? Like it tells you, okay, I can't format this. So. 
I, I have I have it pretty much also integrated into any kind of editor and tooling I'm using to like automatically format on save. The one thing I really hated about the formatter when I remember using it early on is it would format numbers with underscores in the in every three numbers. That was the one thing I really disliked. I thought that was kind of annoying because I had these numbers like database IDs or something, and and they were very specific in my tests or something like that, or, or I had to keep them, like they were static for a reason, whether in the test or in the code and it would always format it with that. And then when I was trying to find something, I tried to do command F and I would try to look for that number and it was formatted. And I was like, oh, damn. And like, and I tried to, and actually I submitted an issue on Elixir Core and I was like, can we please not auto format numbers for this reason? And I basically got pushed back like, oh, well, that should be a string or, or something like that. That was like their reply back. So, you know, we're not going to change this. And I was like, oh, okay, that's, I don't think that's a good idea. But at the same time, like the reason that they made a format is because they're like, listen, this is opinionated. Yeah. And uh, we don't want it configurable. We just want one style. So, you know, live with it. Yeah. Speaking of uh, things that we didn't like about format, I don't like the tabs that they do or the choice of uh, how they indent certain things. Like if you have like a function clause in which you're doing like a more complex matching, so I need like a multi-line clause, they tab the, uh, the other two line, after, even the do, part in the same line as the the name of the function so i feel like do should be on the same line as def <laughs> but uh, like stuff like that I, I don't agree with but besides that like once i get used to it once my mind calibrates to it i guess most of it is pretty good it, it's a privilege to have such a good formatter so uh, I, I don't complain about it yeah no, i mean at that point when you say hey we make this opinionated which is i mean which is a decision you as a core team can make right i mean if somebody doesn't like it nobody forces them to use the formatter at that point you're not gonna make everybody happy it's it's impossible <laughs> i mean the, the one yeah. thing you can do is like this um, configuration where you say okay some of the functions or macros should not have parents right parentheses and that is actually um i, I sometimes use that for like for like macro dsl level stuff mm. like, but rarely but i sometimes do and that is uh, that is nice to, to be able to do that then i couldn't even i couldn't even tell you what exactly i was using it for like um I mean, you can also then import uh, the formatting root of some dependencies, but for example, to get the, I think like Ecto does, for example, the from is something which has also is configured as has no as having no parents and like it mm. just reads better without the parents. So yeah, that, that's something I do. But a part of that, I, I, I think they're in the right and not the worst idea to just say, hey, this is how it is, deal with it. <laughs> But they are making changes, right? I mean, they just came out with the was it one dot thirteen where you can extend the formatter, and now we finally have this formatter that can format like Heeks code within sigils and also within their own files, which is pretty cool. Yeah, Adi, you didn't know this. You didn't know this, Adi. I thought you got your ear to the ground, man. (laughs) Yeah, like uh, Jose tweeted about it yesterday, the day before. That like basically on on master you can now the master version of Elixir when you used it, it also formatted formats he. H, how's what's the reader? Heeks, HTML aware embedded Elixir. I don't know. Like, what what's the full, full length version? Okay, yeah. So with the format, the format I cannot format that. Which I mean, at that point, it's not really changes. It's additions, I guess. It's making it more extensible. So, and I I, I can. That's like the one pain point in Finis project. I think when you come from like an Elixir file to like an HTML file, like ah, oh, this is not formatting automatically. Uh, uh, and, and annoying. <laughs> It's like first world problems, to be honest. But <laughs> <laughs> it's it's annoying. 
Yeah, I remember hearing that from a guy. I was working with this front end guy who works a lot with Elixir stuff. Or sorry, works a lot with the PHP stuff. And I got him onto Elixir for a project that we're working on. And he was like, well, because he was using like a PHP Storm and all this stuff. And then there's a key command that you can format the whole file. And he was like, how can I format this file? And I was like, you can try switching to Ruby with embedded Elixir or, you know, like Ruby's uh, ERB templates and then try and format it. Like that was, this is years ago though, like two, three years ago. So now with this one, I think it'll be one last thing people can complain about (laughs) in all honesty. Okay, then now you can come to a controversial take, Adi. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, the controversial one is like code coverage. And I guess, first of all, do you guys use any code coverage tools? Like do you guys use coveralls or I don't know what else is there? I use coveralls in my open source projects. I, mm. I don't. I don't think I have ever used something like that in like a closed source work environment. To be honest. Oh wow. Okay. Why? Why is that? That's a good question. First of all, like I was never involved in the initial decision for the CI tooling, and like I mean, having an established system is always more resistant to change (laughs) than having a greenfield scenario. Um, And second of all is, I guess I've never seen like uh, uh, then in that context, the value of of pushing against this resistance compared to the the gain. So yeah, I mean, like I I said last week, we are now in the, we've made the decision to move away from like a service oriented architecture more into a modular slash modular. And I could imagine us, us doing something like that then, but yeah, in the, in the context of an existing brownfield project, not having code coverage and then trying to add it is, I'm not sure if it's worth it, to be honest. Please tell me you went to the meeting and you said, told everybody that we're not doing anything but ponchos from now on. I suggested ponchos, but uh, we, we at the end, the team decided on building a monolith with like, well, well, very well separated distinct parts, which can still be packaged into different apps. But the, the argument was, let's start simple. And I mean, we can always add complexity if we need it. And I, I can go with that. When you said poncho, everybody was like, what the hell is that, right? <laughs> I did explain was. what poncho products are. <laughs> it protects you from the sides, okay? Not just from the top, guys. Come on. Poncho, yes, think about obviously. <laughs> so yeah, anyway, we're going to build a monolithic, uh, but very well-separated epic. I th- uh, we also want to do like some some architecture, especially some maybe some strategic domain driven design workshop inside of a team to get everybody up to speed on some design principles to really do our best here. That's the plan. That's a great. But you're, uh, I'm diverging. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the update from last week, so to speak. So you are using coveralls. There's a chance you might use coveralls, but with this new greenfield. Potentially, yeah. It's something we'll put up for discussion for sure. Gotcha. What what about you, Alan? I was just thinking, if you use Poncho with coveralls, that would just be good. (laughs) Oh my Uh, God. Now you got to go back to the table and say, listen, we're using coveralls, we're using Poncho and Credo. I I know the guy, we're going to change it to like top hat or something. (laughs) (laughs) I think I used coveralls a long time ago. Like I remember I wanted to use like that, that badge on GitLab or something. And uh, I think I use coveralls for that because they have documentation on that. Mm. But you know my opinion about testing, like, it, and I think it is further put together by like Kent Beck, where he basically said, listen, I get paid for working code. I don't get paid for writing tests. Not that tests are not important and not that I never write them, but I write them for things that I, I want to guarantee are working properly. You know, like, is there a button there? I don't think I need to write a test for that. But does that button do what I want it to do? That is something I want to test for. So like, I remember when I learned TDD in, in university and yeah, like I remember just, we just wanted to keep getting a green bar the entire time. And so we were just doing stupid tests. 
like after that, I discovered BDD and, and started thinking a little bit more after that. But I just remember when I was doing TDD, we were doing stupid tests that just didn't have any value to them. And so that's what I worry about when you're doing testing. And also when you do like a coverage, right? 100% test coverage is nice to have, but it doesn't guarantee you that you're going to miss some edge case, right? But it does make you feel better. I mean, I think it's a good tool to say, hmm, we actually forgot this piece. We need to test that. But to hit every single branch, I think is it may lead you down uh, like something like bike shedding, right? You're just doing things that just don't have a lot of value, right? So I think, Adi, you're, you're on the opposite side of this one, right? I wouldn't say opposite side. I think there is a point where bike shedding does come in. And I think that's where, you know, like explicitly ignoring something instead of just saying, I'm not going to test it, it's better. The reason why I like cover all this accountability, right? Like you can explicitly say that this thing I don't want to test because it's not important to be te- to be tested or it's hard to test this, the, you know, the cost to benefit, right? But by having a 100% code coverage of what you've, ignoring the explicitly ignored stuff, it, you're ensuring that anything new that gets added you're either testing it or explicitly ignoring it, right? It adds an extra layer of like thinking, is this important to be tested or not, right? And you can give a number, you can associate a number to that. And yeah, I guess it increases accountability while writing tests instead of just like from like a feeling perspective, feeling that this is not important to be tested and making that decision. Yeah, but I do agree, like even 100% code coverage doesn't mean the 100% true test coverage, but at least you're hitting at least you're hitting the the lines. Uh, th- that's why in my mind, the branches, I feel like it's like, right. Right, right. Like the the uh, non, yeah, the multi-line branches, not, yeah, non-single line branches. Yep, at least you're hitting those. And I feel like in my mind, that's like the minimum <laughs> you, should, uh, you should be doing. But yeah, I, I know that people don't agree with that. I just wanted to like present this because like even mathematically, right? Like if you're saying a lot of people are like minimum code coverage of 80 is, but that does mean that um, if you push a new pull request you on, and say it has 100 lines, if you test only 80 lines of code, you're code coverage will pass, right? So that's why I guess 100% is important because like you you need to be explicit about what you don't want to test. And that's what the coveralls and adding up the CI and that 100% number kind of add to the entire project. So I guess you're not really advocating for literal 100% code coverage, but you're advocating for 100% code coverage with like a footnote of like a scheme, basically make the decision, drag it out into the open. Right, like don't make it a exactly. decision everybody does on their own for every single pull request, but make it something okay, explicit and well defined out in the air. I, I can I can go with that. <laughs> I yeah. think that makes a lot of sense. Well, what kind of tooling does does code uh, does coveralls give you there? I mean, how do you annotate a certain piece of code to not be tested? Like, how does that work? Yeah, so just like a credo, coveralls has like a config file. You can ignore a file. But you know, there's, a, there's also magic comments just like Credo. You can ignore like a block of code. The coveralls ignore start and coveralls ignore end. Now, this is where like, <laughs> this is where I'm, I am advocating for that, that I just said, but I, uh, my goal, internal goal is to, act, I do like to test everything. Uh, uh, I know people won't agree with that, right? So this is where I, we're kind of rolling out this package that I wrote with coveralls ignore, but we can add a due date next to it so like okay i'm punting on testing this but from an engineering perspective it should be tested so after the due date the ci will not ignore that and it will fail so i, I think i think uh it, i know I mean, it, you can like combine this with like you know like say having to deliver a project soon right this thing you feel is not super important to be tested but it's testable is it should be easier tested i want that to be tested and that's why the due date part is important but I know Alan clearly disagrees here. 
But how does it work in practice then? Like, I mean, do you have like nightly CI runs for each part of your system? Or is that something like, I, I don't know, like after two weeks, somebody touches the thing again, opens up a PR and suddenly this one test is failing. And then what, like they fix the test in the set of a PR, which might not even really be related to that functionality. Like how, how does that work? Yeah, we, we, we can probably, we haven't rolled it out completely. We'll probably have like a weekly, a periodic run of the CI. I think that's probably the best way to do it. It should not be suddenly on the engineer who is doing a different feature to it. And <laughs> that would be hilarious. Oh, God, Jake. I, 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 well, Jake again, Jake coming again and doing, breaking the CI and now I have to fix it. <laughs> nice. Honestly, we haven't rolled it out, so we don't know how it will look like, right? Like it, it, we might perfectly roll it out for a, for a quarter and realize, oh no, it's, it's more of a pain than we had realized. But yeah, I think right now we have very minimum ignore, co coveralls ignore. We ignore like certain files like, um, you know, the endpoint, for example. You don't test every part of that in, in, a, in a Phoenix project. It releases when you, you know, release and migrate, like stuff like that. Those those things are like ignored. Migrations obviously are, are ignored. But like we try to either standardize all our Phoenix apps such that, you know, once we have figured out how to test something, we can just use similar infrastructure to test. Similar, similar, similar stuff like you know Uber Auth, for example. It was a pain to come up, come with way to test that, but it was very important because it actually ensured a couple of times that the updates are making are actually not breaking our silent process. But it was a pain to test that. But all the other apps that use Uber Auth now are using the same infrastructure test. So yeah, like standardization helps with stuff like this. But yeah, I, I am definitely more on the um, yeah. When I said you can explicitly ignore stuff that you want to ignore and reach 100% test coverage. That was, that was like a more compromising way of saying that. I am I, I actually lean more towards 100% code coverage. I don't like to ignore, ignore lines or ignore files, uh, usually. Hi, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs. And lately I've been coaching some people on starting some podcasts and in some cases, just taking their career to the next level. You know, whether you're beginner going to intermediate, intermediate going to advanced, whether you're trying to get noticed in the community or go freelance. I've been helping these folks figure out how to get in front of people, how to build relationships and how to build their careers and max out and, and just go to the next level. So if you're interested in talking to me and having me help you go to the next level, go to topendevs.com slash coaching. I will give you a one hour free session where we can figure out what you're trying to do, where you're trying to go and figure out what the next steps are. And then from there, we can figure out how to get you to the place you want to go. So once again, that's topendevs.com slash coaching. Yeah, I mean, the bargain you're kind of always striking there is, is that you actually need to make sure that everybody is on board with that. Otherwise, you end up with tests which fulfill the 100% code coverage requirement, but not more. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Like, Which are not worthwhile of being called tests at all. I mean, at the end of the day, I could write a test which says, hey, I'm invoking this function and I might even do a try-catch here, right? And <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. the test is green and the code was run. I mean, <laughs> of course, that, that would probably be caught in a code review process, but, but you, mm -hmm. you get where I'm going, right? I mean, the, you right. can trick the system, so to speak. So yeah, okay, I I I get why why this opt out sometimes is necessary, and then like I'm kind of more on Alan's side there to say that there are parts of my code where of my of my system where it's just not worth it. I like I, I don't know like some kind of trivial HTML HTML markup for example. Like, I mean, okay, this should render some HTML, right? Like I, this should be valid HTML, maybe even so. But at the end of the day, I'm not going to verify that this is a list which has five elements. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah. I'll tell you what, also, the day the day that we know how to test live view hooks from 
JavaScript is the day when I'll start bringing Credo and doing 100% test coverage. Mark my <laughs> words. If somebody can give that to me, then I think that's going to start changing my attitude. I think don't we already have an answer to that? Like testing live view hooks is something then you I, have to do in JavaScript. I take JavaScript. it back then. I take it back. <laughs> you can't really test it from Elixir. But yeah. I also, like, I think, like, I mean, on that note of HTML testing, while we're talk, talking about tooling, I, I don't think there's a really good tool in Elixir yet to, to do that kind of testing, right? I mean, there is some stuff for this in, in Ruby. I remember that there are some some test helpers to test HTML markup. To say, for example, that this should be a link or whatever. Um, right. But I don't sure. think there is some... Be there's no there's something with live view you can say that like this thing there's selectors that you can use and then you can say it it has to be like I remember seeing this in the live view testing mm -hmm. class I bought recently. Is that Floki you're talking about? Yeah, Floki. I mean, Floki is used underneath, but right. there's this idea of an element, and then you can somehow describe it, and then you can guarantee that it's something like a button or a link, and just ignore the CSS or whatever. Okay, then my knowledge might be outdated there. I do remember that I wanted to do that at some point, and there was no real good solution out there, which just worked out of a box, right? And I just didn't want to bother with, with setting up my some something about myself. And yeah, I, were you I talking about like Wallaby and this kind of thing, where you can yeah. drive a browser? Not necessarily. I mean. Uh, I've never tried that out, to be honest. Yeah, I feel like the browser tests at this point are just used like, you know, um, something established like Cypress or even Capybara to do the browser tests, uh, like Ruby. Yeah, Elixir, yeah, Wallaby was a browser test library where Alan Al mentioned. I don't even think it's maintained. It's been it's been a while uh, since I even heard that name. But yeah, I think Floki is what we use currently for just like uh, testing essential HTML elements. <laughs> But the behavior of HTML, that, that, I think you need a browser for that. Actually, Wallaby was updated four months ago. Oh, wow. So might, might still be alive and kicking. I'm not sure if, uh, how, how, what, what exactly was updated, but the last release was on the 23rd September 2021. So not that long ago. And I mean, in, 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 I guess in the JavaScript ecosphere, that would be, oh my God, this project is dead and it's rotting and there are, <laughs> there's like flies all over the corpse of this one. But... Uh, in, I mean, in the Dixie ecosphere, everything is moving a bit slower, which, to be honest, I like. <laughs> you know what? It's sponsored uh, by Smart Logic. Smart Logic, so, right? And I and I do see Chris on here. I remember Chris was working on this. Yeah, I know the development had stopped on it for some time, but it's great to know that it's back. What's actually driving it though? Is, what's it using underneath? Oh, that's no, right. You can choose between Selenium and Chrome. Have you actually used Wallaby? Because I, I I was always intrigued by the idea uh -huh. of doing this, but I've never done it. I mean, for for our listeners, Wallaby is like a browser-based testing, right? Where you like I think it runs a headless browser. Kind of like Cypress does. Right. Then this you can really say, okay, though, navigate through pages and say, okay, this should go here. And then clicking that button should lead me to this page mm -hmm. and these things should be visible. It's the kind of testing you can do. I mean, it looks like it's more than just headless. Like I was thinking, run any, run any, any browser, even a, a non headless browser, <laughs> a head browser. I don't think any of these ones are headless, though. Selenium and, and Chrome are not headless, as far as I know. Chrome has a headless uh, headless version, too, right? You can run Does Chrome it? on headless mode, yeah. Okay, I'm not aware of that. Mm. Does it work in a CI, though? That's the problem. Actually, we're going to test this out this week now. I'll have some... Uh... I guess feedback next week. Sure. Like I'm also gonna. I'm also curious, like to hear like the results of your 100% code coverage test uh, experiment, so to speak, maybe. Yeah. So if you, I mean, that, that actually also sounds like something you uh, we could package in a conference talk at some point. Like okay, how how we did this. I'm working and, on it right now. <laughs> and failed spectacularly. No. <laughs> <laughs> 
yeah, I mean, our experiences, it's only been a few months. Uh, it's been great. It, we have been able to catch a lot of bugs without which, uh, without the without 100% coverage, it would not have happened uh, because we wrote certain tests, uh, certain changes to code, you know, made our CI break. Yeah, I mean, you can debate the cost of those things. I mean, you, can, you would deploy it. You could probably debug it in like 15, 20 minutes and then redeploy it, right? So uh, that's probably the, the, the cost of failure. It would, have, would not have been that high because that app wasn't very essential anyway for uh, the rest of the application. But... Yeah, I mean, it's been it's been great from my opinion, at least. I, mean, it, I should really ask everyone else <laughs> uh, when I when they joined. I asked them about uh, the hundred percent code coverage, and everyone was happy about it. I know one of our engineers is doesn't like that mm-hmm. at least a little bit because that means they have to write more tests than they usually do. But everyone else, I think, like them. Yeah, I think we're gonna know we're gonna know more. You know, like the whole stuff we talked about last week about like the whole uh, architecture of uh, our suite and all these experiments, like code coverage and all the stuff we're doing. We'll know that in like maybe like four or five more months. Like, w- was this decision right or not? Yeah, I'm certainly curious to to hear what pops out of that. So keep me up to date. Maybe yeah, we yeah. can do like a follow up episode of this. Like, okay, how does this experiment turn out? Yeah, um, I mean, just just to give some numbers, we have over two hundred thousand lines of code, that non-generated line of code. So, uh, and the, it's the hundred percent code uh, code coverage is across those lines. Yes, certain things are ignored. Probably less how, than yeah. How much is ignored? That would, would be my next. Question. I would say less than a per- less than one percent. Okay, fair enough. I mean, in the context of code quality tools, I think we should talk about the elephant in the room, which is dialyzer. <laughs> 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 Definitely, that was one of the room. <laughs> yeah, Dialyzer. I, th- I feel like the Elixir community specifically has like a love-hate relationship with Dialyzer. You know what I'm saying? Nah, it's. I mean, it's it's one of these tools which which can be very useful in certain kinds of contexts, especially for example, to um, I feel like for me mostly useful it was to keep my type specs correct and not vice versa. I don't think I've had a case yet where like Dialyzer caught like a bug in my code. But it has repeatedly caught a bug in my type specs, by so to speak, like well, type specs were incorrect. And it's useful for that. On the other hand, I mean, when you go into the territory of dialyzer, especially in the context of running it on your CI system, which I've done and set up, you really need to set up some caching because otherwise you have dialyzer runs of like 20 minutes and longer, which is just not feasible in the, if you want a fast feedback loop. And then you, my experience also with, with caching the PLTs from Dialyzer, which is basically like, what, what does it refer to? Like persistent lookup table PLTs? Yeah, I think it was that. Where it caches basically all the type information it infers from the core library and from your application. Sometimes that these files that kind of break and the Dialyzer is like, yeah, they, it can't process the PLT and I've never really figured out why. And that was like... I, I'm on the fence here, and I feel like a lot of people are too, where, where I'm at this point. It's like, yes, I see the value Dialyzer proposes, but I'm not sure if, we, if it, the effort is worth it, because it, it's not a seamless experience, at least for my for my experience. It never has been super seamless. So, yeah, Dialyzer, good on paper, not, not as good in practice, maybe? I'm not sure. I would agree with that for the most part. So I, I just don't add dialyzer to like Phoenix apps or like big applications. What I my favorite pattern for dialyzer is like say you're running like an API client, for example, for say GitHub, right? And you have this like centralized way of like querying a resource and that, that you're like wrapped into like a behavior or like a using macro, right? And then each uh 
function in the resource needs to comply with like a you know specification and that gets access to like a centralized module and that way you know you're making sure you're ensuring all the use cases are being captured right without necessarily having to test or even like a get your point where you're, test, where you're testing, fetching every resources, every use case. So I, I think in that case, I feel Dialyze has got like, like same advantage as like a type language for like a small scope project like this. But beyond that, yeah, it's too much pain. Like, yeah, first of all, yeah, you're right. The duration, it takes so long to run and um, it just doesn't work for like uh, big projects. There's so many weird errors that I yeah, you just can't fix. It's also, I mean, if you get an error in Dialyzer, the chances it's, a bit cryptic, like you, it, it doesn't really yeah. directly point you to what's wrong, and you have to do a bit of digging to actually figure out what what the root cause of, of of this warning is, and all of that makes for an experience which is not as great as it could be. Let's say that, and which like again leads me leads, leads me to my conclusion of like, is this really worth it? I mean, I, I'm using it in my open source projects again, mostly to keep my type specs correct, to like actually make sure that my type specs don't lie. Which because they are useful in that context, public API for people who consume these projects, right? Right. But beyond that, I'm not sure. I'm just not sure. There's this great line in the official documentation on especially like PLTs. And here, let me just read it out. The persistent Booker table PLT is basically a cached output of your analysis. This is important because you probably step yourself in the eye of a fork if you had to wait for Dialyzer to analyze all the standard library and OTP modules if you're using it every time you run it. <laughs> that's, like a perf- that's a perfect way to put it. I mean, it takes really, really long first time around. If you, on my MacBook, my M1, it, I think it's like five, five-ish minutes, maybe a bit shorter, a few, at least a few minutes definitely to run it the first right. time. But honestly, I usually don't have this beefy machine, so it takes even longer. Right. Yeah. I'm. I'm also hoping, like the hopefully, like some stuff like Gleam and uh, other. Well, only Gleam right now that I'm uh, that I have my mind on. Like, could like significantly decrease the need for using Dialyzer, even the use cases that I pointed out. I mean, it's much better than Dialyzer in the in the, in the way that it's like, it's it's a, it's a complete type system, <laughs> and it doesn't take too long to run. <laughs> I do remember the other thing I remember with Dialyzer. I remember I was trying to use it before and I kind of gave up on it. But I think I did. I also didn't like that it used a bunch of files on my system. Create a bunch of these random files with some meaning to them. It was like cached. The PLTs, for, I guess. The PLT files. Yeah, PLTs. Yeah, that kind of stuff was a little bit like, like, should I commit these? Should I not commit these? I, I just wasn't quite understanding about the PLTs because when I quickly read up on Dialyzer, I didn't see any mention about them. Yeah, there, there, there is a section in the readme, maybe, maybe it wasn't back then, but I mean, like I said, but basically what Dialyzer does if it runs the first time, it infers all types from the standard library and from anything you might be using, which some of that is quicker because it might have type annotations, but um, some of that is, like, it, and then there are, no, it doesn't even use the type annotations, it use it always infers it completely, right? And then it checks it against the type annotations. So yeah, it has to basically infer the types of all the code out there from standard library and just just takes a while that just takes a while and that those files basically cache these inferred type information because otherwise you'd step yourself in the eye with a fork <laughs> if you had to do that every time if you're on this tool because it really takes ages so yeah yeah uh, I, i'm kind of on the fence like i feel it, it is a worthwhile tool for anything which might be consumed by somebody else like a library and it has like a clearly defined api and you want to make sure that that you give as much correct information as you can, but 
internally, I'm not so sure. It's, I, I do I basically do the same as I do with, with my type specs, right? And my type specs are usually not on like low level modules, so to speak, like with a deeply nested in the application, but more on the higher level, like for example, um, context models in the context of a Phoenix app or like top level modules in the context of a library. Like that, that's where I put type, spec, type specs. And then occasionally lower level if, if it's if it warrants the complexity and if it's I think it's useful. But as a rule of thumb, basically the longer the module name, the less type specs you find, so to speak. <laughs> so it sounds like I have to add three things to my projects now, which I feel like I'm the only one who does this and that's fine. I'll be the guinea pig. Credo, uh, Dialyzer, and what was the last one? Oh, coveralls. Yes. <laughs> I'll, I'll give it a whirl. Okay, I'll give it a whirl. Like, I think the coveralls is good because, like, I got newer people and I want to see... I know they're they're not... This idea of TDD or, or testing stuff is just totally new. Like, I always walk by, I'm like, like oh, this is not working. I said, did you write tests? And they always say no. And I say, write your test or I'm not going to help you. I still end up helping anyways because I'm a softie. But I should stick to that rule. But I think that's... it's 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 good, right? And then, like, after they... Are done with the feature that we run the we run the coverage and then see how much they actually test it. I think it's it's a good thing to have because they're much people are much more visual, right? Uh, the credo stuff I think would be good for them to figure out. Oh, this is a good you know because you know when I get in there and I had, I do my stuff like you know when I update their code for them or when we work through a problem, they can see some what it looks like to actually write advanced Elixir code or more advanced than them at least, and they're like, oh wow, this is so clear. Like they look at what they had before and what I helped them to refactor, and it's like. Yes, it's kind of more complicated. It's more new Elixir stuff, like we use a with statement. But they look at it and like, actually, I can read this very easily, even though it's complicated. But after we walk through the syntax, it's actually super concise. So is there anything? Got, oh, go ahead. Adam. I got one more. I got one more, I guess, um, code quality like tool. Um, I, I, I think I mentioned it before. It's called Sobelo. It is uh, like a security analyzer tool for Phoenix, like just for Phoenix. And uh, it does like a lot of stuff like uh, SQL injection, cross-site uh, scripting and stuff like that. But yeah, it's a good one to add to your Phoenix uh, applications and even the CI just to make sure, you know, you don't miss any of these security vulnerabilities. I believe that one's called so below. Let's see below. Let me double check. I know what you're talking about. I did use it before. Did, oh, yeah, I said so below. I heard you say C below. For some no, reason. So. Oh. I, I heard him say so below. Okay. All right, fine. Sasha, you can stand up for me over here. I'll remember this one. Right. <laughs> You're wrong, Alan. You're wrong. <laughs> yeah, so is pretty cool, but I feel a little bit nervous when I use it because like, it was like, oh, hey, you need to add this and this and this. And I was like, man, did I write all my apps like really not that secure? <laughs> like out of the box, Phoenix. There's a couple of things that changed, but not too much stuff. And, and I mean, another tooling tool I would like to get into at some point, but I'm not even sure what the state there is in the ecosystem is um, any kind of mutation testing. Because especially now that you, we talked about 100% code coverage and that tests might be meaningless, right? I mean, that, that, that number of 100% you can reach with a bunch of tests which do nothing. Like nothing would stop you from doing that. That's where mutation testing comes in, right? Mutation testing for everybody who might not be familiar with it is like it, so to speak, it's a test for your tests because what it does, it basically says, okay, I'm I'm, I'm going to now mutate your code. I'm going to change your code, and then we're going to run the tests again, and they better something fails now, 
Like something should fail. Now, some test should fail if I change this line of code. And if I, if it doesn't change, for example, it, it swaps out like a greater with a lesser sign and stuff like that, right? If nothing fails, then that means you haven't captured this behavior inside of your tests. But my latest impression was that, that, that there is nothing really... Uh, like uh, there's no library out there like the community converged on which has like a certain level, level of maturity to really use in your projects but i mean i might be wrong even like googling for it i just googled while we're talking uh, there's like there seemed, i found four different projects like xavier oh, wow. mutation muzak and the darwin like these are the things i find on the first page of google okay to be honest duck, duck, go. <laughs> but uh, so yeah <laughs> Have yeah. you have any of you ever meddled around with mutation testing? I looked at the code for Musac, uh, and that was purely, uh, I was earlier last year, I was purely because I wrote uh, like a unsuccessful mutation testing library in Elixir in 2018, 2019. Um, and I, uh, I, I think that it's in, I think that that's in the right direction. And I, I know uh, that's probably the most, uh, that's probably the package that a lot of people are most excited about. I haven't even heard of like Xavier or other ones that you mentioned. Yeah, I mean, like I didn't really check them out. I just, I just mm. looked on the results of Google. And M- music is the one I've heard about. <laughs> but to be honest, I mean, I, I also found one which is called Darwin, which I kind of like just from the name <laughs> <laughs> for mutation testing in Darwin. But uh, nice, nice. It's, it hasn't been updated in over 14 months. So I guess like, chances are low that this is actually that useful. But even even music is not that active in development, it seems. Mm. So yeah, but, but that, like, that, that 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 would be pretty cool, like having having it too. And I feel like it, it should be doable in Elixir, especially because we have this this very powerful access to the AST, which is, I guess, not really a prerequisite, but makes it easier. Yeah, I do remember some people talking about this a few years ago. I think it was music actually. It sounds familiar. The name. Is this where you got the idea from? Because I do remember people talking about this at a conference at some point that they made a library for this. Yeah, uh, my, 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 my uh, music was not updated in six months six months ago. So, but only I think it's only six commits actually. That's huh. not that much to be honest. <laughs> yeah, yeah so. I, 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 I know I was do, when I did some research. There were some like um, language agnostic mutation testing um framework they were using um was uh, there was like a, a language agnostic tree library using that tree to do mutation testing um i uh, i i don't know i, I think i think it, uh, if we could leverage something like that 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 would be nice right like just l- having to write like a small um asd translation for elixir to that tree library uh, which might allow the mutation testing to occur um i, I forgot that I, i'm just blanking on the names <laughs> this is like a few years ago have you guys ever played around with uh what is that testing call where you just throw a bunch of random inputs basically chaos monkey your stuff property property testing yeah yeah have you guys played around with that not an elixir uh i've done that a bunch in haskell but i mean you can yeah i've used the inputs from um the haskell property based test for an elixir i know there's something called prop Proper or something like that in Erlang. Proper, yeah, it's, Proper, it's yeah. but uh, it's an Erlang thing. Like, it's, I right. mean, you can use an Elixir, of course, as usual, but it's not specifically built for Elixir. But I mean, there's also the uh, I forgot how it's called. There's like this with this check all macro um, library. You mean stream data? 
stream is it stream data or is stream data only the thing which is stream built data on top was of? made from uh, what you hired. I forgot his real name. He wrote the testing book. Oh, Andrea wrote that. I didn't even Andrea, know that. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. Now you make me yeah, second guess yeah, myself. You're right. You're right. <laughs> okay, it's in stream data. Yeah, I maybe mean, there there was also this announcement way back that this is something which might end up in the core and core, right? And uh, they, they pedaled back. They pedaled back from that because they said, "Okay, it's like it's a it's a very specific thing, and it's of course if it's in core, you need to maintain it." Uh, so we decided to leave it in user land, which because it works, it works in user land. If they put it in core, I'd probably use it to be honest. <laughs> I have a hard time to like give a good reason to bring stuff in for just for testing. But yeah, if it's if it's not in core, I probably yeah less chance for me to use it. When do you guys usually use property-based tests? I have never, so I can't say. <laughs> I haven't either, but I mean, I think they're they're good for like database drivers and things where you have to have random input. You got to make sure that you can handle the stuff. But I think there's nothing wrong with. I mean, you, I, I, I bought the book made by Fred, and I haven't read it yet. But I think once I read, it, I think, but maybe I'll probably have a better idea about when it would be good because I'm sure it could also be good for just normal functions. I mean, I can imagine like it would be bad. I, I can imagine it'd be good for like even filling in forms, right? Testing to make sure that you can handle random input, right? That kind of stuff. I think that would be yeah. a good test case for it. It's just very Maybe. expensive. Oh, sorry, go ahead, Sasha. It's, it's something which I think you usually only apply in like an algorithmic scenario, right? If not really for your business logic, because at the end of the day, you need to add some logic to your to your tests to say, okay, I'm generating data and I'm generating the output in an expected fashion. And I mean, there's a there's a good example way back where, where like the core team at Jose wrote like a blog post where they said, okay, we actually found some bugs in the core library with that. And with what was like um, contains, like if a string contain, if, if you have an empty string and they said, okay, does any string contain this empty string? And they were not certain like what the result should be. And then they had some property-based tests, which said, okay, like let's generate one string, let's generate another string. And then if I concatenate these two things together, like one string should always, like one of these things should always be contained within the, in the concatenated result, right? And that might happen then with a, might generate like an empty string at that point. And then of course, an empty string should be contained in that. So we figured, okay, empty, like, if you ask, is an empty string contained in the string? The answer is always yes. Um, so I can see why it's, why it's used in that kind of scenario. But usually, to be honest, when you write our kinds of applications, so to speak, it's a lot of very, to be honest, arbitrary business logic. Right. <laughs> so that's not where it's, that's where it's not as useful. Like where I would always like to put it is um, like a, basically a subset of property-based testing is fast testing. Where you say, okay, I, for example, I got now a JSON schema, which describes what kind of responses my endpoint or what kind of uh, body uh, payloads my endpoint accepts. And now let's use that to generate basically all possible combinations of these values. And the answer from the backend should always be some kind of 200 response, some kind of 400 response, like, okay, this is not valid, but it should never be a 500, right? And that's, like, I can't see it being useful in that fashion. The other, fa- I mean, the other scenario of like algorithmic scenarios too, but I that's just very niche, so to speak. Yeah. And I've never had this scenario yet where we where we want, I wanted to do that. I guess I could actually use it in like a, in another open source project of mine, which is basically dormant, which we, where, where we it's called a specification pattern implementation, where you can basically uh, combine and generate a bunch of rules and then ask, okay, does this does this value f- conform to these rules? Which is not about um, that's perfect types for or anything. Properties. 
Yeah. yeah it's, not, it's not about types or anything. It's really about, okay, I have a bunch of business rules, for example, and I want to combine them and say, okay, this right. piece of data does this conform to these rules. So yeah, I guess that yeah. could be useful there. It's funny you said that. My I've, I've used property test only in two cases. One, I was running, when I was running my a compiler for a language that I was designing, maybe we'll talk about that some other day too. But uh, one, one of the other one was like uh, actually an empty hard problem, which was uh, kind of a combinator library, like, like a, a subset of rules determining the final output, right? And since it's an NP, NP complex or an NP hard problem, it's like, you know, the output, how the output, it's, it's hard to determine what the output is, but output should have some properties. It should satisfy some properties, right? But how you get to the output is like not straightforward because it's NP complex. So it's, it, it was a perfect use case for that. And like it, generally with that, we were like, oh, we're getting like 95% success or 98% success. It was like a percentage success, not like all tests passing. So I think it's, it, it was such a good use case for that. And that's where like I, I like that property-based test actually wrote that in Ruby. But yeah, like running the same suite against like multiple uh, different applications in Elixir same application in Ruby and the same application in Haskell. That was actually a like, fun experiment to do as well. So another thing I have to add to my list of things to do. <laughs> <laughs> it's really, I mean, I, I'm, not, I'm not the last person who says, who says you have to use property-based tests. It's a useful tool in your tool belt. But as usual, with basically any kind of software development, it depends. And that's the case, then my belt's going to fall along with my pants at this point. I got to, <laughs> to add on. Okay, folks, do we have anything else you would like to cover because we are we, we're over the one hour mark so i mean it would be a bad time to close this off nine nine yes yes yeah let's close this off yeah okay that to be goofy on the show now <laughs> of course I, i've always been goofy <laughs> never noticed <laughs> okay uh, i mean I, I did the i did the german angry introduction at some point right i can i can do the german out outproduction i don't know Outro, German outro, angry German outro at the end of the show if you want me to. Okay, but let's let's first go to picks. Hey folks, if you love this podcast and would like to support the show, or if you wish you could listen without the sponsorship messages, then you're in luck. We're setting up new premium podcast feeds where you can get all of the episodes released after Christmas 2020 without the ads. Signing up will help us pay for editing and production, and you can go sign up at devchat.tv slash premium. Uh, so, Alan, what are your picks for this week? Yes, my picks. Well, for one pick, as you guys can see, you guys at home cannot see this, but I've recently been decking out my room because I've been doing more and more streaming on YouTube and people commented that my room is too boring because it's literally just a white wall. Now I have a bunch of random stuff. One thing I think is pretty cool that you guys should check out is actually the Philips Hue. And I'll send you guys a link. They have like lights for everything. Sadly, I have fluorescent tubes, so I can't put a Philips Hue up there. But like uh, I added a bunch of strip lights. I added like some uh, bar lights behind my... Uh, my screens and it's actually projecting it's a wall and you can kind of see some of it reflecting back and uh, I think Philips Hue itself like it's pretty cool so if you want to have some RGB in your room and kind of spice stuff up you can check it out it also can sync with Spotify which is pretty cool too so if you haven't dropped Spotify yet and still using it you can definitely check it out you can sync it and and it kind of goes with your music it's pretty cool so I think it's pretty cool so that's what my pick is for this week nice nice Adi what are your picks <laughs> yeah, I guess since we're talking about testing and we are on property test, I'm going to pick Quick Check. Uh, it's, uh, in my eyes, the property testing library. It's uh, uh, it's run in Haskell, but it's the best experience uh, running property tests uh, in terms of interface uh, and in terms of defining properties and how things tie together. This type system makes so much difference. So check it out if you're looking at property-based tests. 
Another one, more of a shameless, I guess, plug, uh, haven't done those in a while, is the package that I wrote, X Coveralls Utils. That's the one that allows you to add due date to your coveralls ignore. So if you are like me and you don't want to ignore something indefinitely and you're not like Sasha and Alan, <laughs> then go ahead and like check it out. I would love to get your feedback. And the links for both will be in the show notes. All right, nice. <laughs> yeah, don't be like me. I guess that's what Ali is saying. <laughs> He's shaking his head. <laughs> okay, I don't really have like a technical pick this week. Um, I'm, I've started reading some books, which I might pick at a later point, but it's too early to really, the jury's still out on them, you know. But something I've started listening to, and I know I'm late to the party here, is I've started to listen to The Dresden Files, which is I mean, it's a very long, ongoing book series of like a, of a wizard living in the like in the present, right? And in Chicago, and he's like the only openly practicing wizard, basically. And it's like a combination of like urban fantasy and noir story. And the cool thing, I, which I'm specifically picking this now, there's like an audiobook series written by Jim Butcher. And the, there has been a very interesting artistical choice in the making of these audiobooks because all the like usual noises of him briefing or like shuffling of the pages are left in and it really feels like it, that kind of gives the impression of like okay this is actually harry dresden the protagonist re- telling him telling you his story because the books are also written in like the first person perspective so that that kind of has a nice ring to it and kind of adds to the experience i feel that that that, that makes more personal it really feels like he's in the room if you're telling him a story so um if you're into audiobooks and you like fantasy and especially urban fantasy then i certainly recommend to give a listen to to these it's fun that's my pick for a week all right folks then thank you for listening and tune in the next time when we have another episode of elixir mix bye Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.